Are there some images that are running through your head right now? <laughs> like Superman. <laughs> it's like, it's very red and orange. Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a Minneapolis composer. And I started the show because I wanted to share insights from other composers and songwriters about how they make music. You can hear all the episodes and learn more about the artists at ComposerQuest.com. This episode was a super fascinating talk with composer and clarinetist Dr. Mary Beth Hutlin. I knew she was a gifted composer, but I had no idea she was so perceptually gifted. I found out the night before this interview that she experiences synesthesia, which for her means she sees colors when she hears music. In addition to that, she has perfect pitch, and she has a constant stream of melodies flowing through her head that she can tap into for her compositions. So it was super interesting for me to hear how these gifts affect the way she hears music and the way she makes music. So speaking of talented composers, in this episode we also talk about Mary Beth's trip through Germany to retrace the steps of J.S. Bach. We discuss why Bach is possibly the coolest composer ever, and it was neat to learn some new things about him that I didn't know before. So let's get right to my talk with Mary Beth Hutland. Mary Beth? Thanks for joining me here. Absolutely my pleasure. How do you approach the composing process? You know, that's the funniest question because in preparation for this interview, that was a question I knew you were going to ask me and I wasn't sure how I was going to answer it. Because for lack of a better way to describe it to you, it just sort of comes to me. And that sounds so not helpful for anybody who who wants to go into composition. And it sounds rather willy-nilly. It's like, well, how good can this music be? She has no idea where it comes from. But it does, I think, partially stem from the fact that, like, since childhood, there's always music running in my head. In fact, I always laughed when everybody was getting iPods. I'm like, why get an iPod? I have music going through my head all the time. I don't need to pipe it in. (laughs) And so usually the music running through my head does exist. Somebody else wrote it. But if I'm in the right mind space, then the music running through my head is my own the piece that I'm working on for a young ensemble that's about the Titanic. I think of the Titanic and automatically there's music that comes to my mind that is my own, that represents what that would be in a sonic sense. Always the same music when you're thinking of the Titanic or does it kind of... No, I think it's probably stylistically the same, but the notes themselves are not necessarily the same. Although like speaking about this piece yesterday and speaking about it today, they're pretty similar. But if we were to come back in like six months and I thought about the Titanic, I was going to write another piece, then it might be totally different. So if I were to just name something like mm-hmm. um, a puppy, okay, would you have some musical idea associated with it? I could, yeah. I know you're going to ask me to say a no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, And I don't know why it's a minor. I could not tell you why it's a minor. I could tell you the fact that it's very quick paced because I'm thinking about this dog running around the, the room, like literally exploring every corner. But the minute it gets there, it's off to somewhere else different. Huh. <laughs> so. Wow. Well, thanks yeah. for singing that for me. <laughs> so. So, it, so it really is just like this free flowing. Very much so. 
Um, and then from there come, you know, the confines, you know, like, especially this piece about the Titanic, because it's being written for young kids, there isn't necessarily the freedom to make it completely free flowing. That's where the ideas come from. And then I morph it into what it is I need or what I want it to be. Huh. So. So do you, when you come up with these ideas, do you think mostly melodies or are you hearing the harmonies and everything? Depends. A lot of it is melody. But sometimes there's a very obvious harmony that goes with it. So I hear from reputable sources that also you associate colors with music. Yeah. And that, again, I really... I can't explain to you why it is a certain piece is a certain color. But the minute I hear it, I'm like, okay. And I don't even necessarily think about it consciously. It's just as a color. A little bit less with my own music, but that's partially because I'm inside the music. I'm thinking too much of everything else. But definitely when I hear just a random piece of music, there's a color associated with it. Hmm. And I know this reputable source acts. It doesn't relate to the mood of the music. <laughs> and I think there's an element of that. Does it relate to tonality? I've never actually like researched it within my own perception to figure out if it's by tonality. I kind of doubt it, actually. So it's like the mood of the music creates different colors. Do you see those mm-hmm. colors as you would colors on our shirts, for example, or... Yes. I mean, not as in like when I'm listening to Minnesota Orchestra, it's not like suddenly they all become blue or something like that. But somewhere in my mind, there is that color and it's an immediate association. But when I'm listening to the orchestra, I turn it off sometimes too, like ignoring that little part of it's sort of like that voice in the back of your mind telling you something, something, something. Sometimes, especially when I'm learning my own music as a performance major, sometimes that would get in the way. And it's like, I have to worry about the technical part of this piece. I can't worry about that side. Huh. And sometimes, you know, even when listening to the Minnesota Orchestra, it's like, okay, this is distracting me. I want to hear and the clarinets. And you can turn it off? A little bit. Um, more or less ignore it, if that makes sense. Okay. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> um, um, a good analogy is the idea that, and maybe nobody else can do this, I don't know, the idea of perfect pitch, but I play the clarinet, so I ignore it completely when I play. Hmm. And so, so you also have perfect pitch. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> so that one I usually keep under my hat a little bit. But um, but that's the best analogy I can think of is just the fact that you just ignore the fact that the pitch you're playing is not matching, the, the sound does not match what's on the page or okay. what anybody's going to call it for that matter. Okay. Huh. So... Although um, the, ch- the complication with that is that you still want to play all these notes in tune and you want to be able to use that skill to help you in doing those things. Having to ignore it to a certain extent, that doesn't always help. But do you play other instruments that you can use your perfect pitch skills for? Definitely piano. And I played oboe for a little while and violin. And so it's really nice to be able to actually finally sync those together. But that's okay. There's nothing against the clarinets. And even the fact that with clarinet, you have B-flat, A, E-flat. So you really have all three of those that you're dealing with. And it's still, um, it will throw me for a loop, like the pitches such as um, yesterday we were rehearsing a piece that I had originally played in one key. We played it in another key in a different um, transcription. It was up a half step, and that drove me bonkers for the entire oh. rehearsal. And likewise, um, going between B-flat and A, 
it took some learning for me to be able to do that because it would drive me nuts. Like I would at one point see that note and it sounds like this when I play it. And then you go to the other clarinet and it sounds like something entirely different. So all these perceptual gifts you have, Uh do you think of them as gifts? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I mean, when I step back and look at it, yeah, definitely. It does enable me to do an awful lot of things that I otherwise would, you know, including composition, otherwise probably wouldn't be able to do. In the moment, do I think of them as anything other than what I'm dealing with? No. Sometimes they're a hindrance. And, Hmm. you know, so sometimes I'm not perhaps as grateful as I should be. Well, I'm jealous. (laughs) Don't be. Because like I said, but then when you get the question, how do you come up with what you come up with? I don't even know what to tell you. Hmm. I have no idea. I didn't know I would be interviewing a synesthete on the show. (laughs) Right, right. And I heard you have a background in psychology too. Oh, minor. Oh, okay. (laughs) But I do love learning about perceptual psychology. I'm sure. Because everyone's perceptions of things could be different and we just don't really know it yes very much so and i have thought that very often like from all perspectives whether it's auditory whether it's visual whatever the sense is what kind of pieces do you listen to and associate with colors pretty much anything has a color whether it's pop music classical music solo artists ensemble orchestra It first came about because of orchestra music, but that partially was the fact that that was what I was listening to at the time. And do I remember this happening as a child? Not exactly. But I guess it was the sort of thing that I didn't realize that everybody didn't experience this. You don't realize that until you're much later in life. You're like, oh, wait, nobody else has ever spoken about this. So, Do you remember when you Not exactly, but I think it was probably late middle school, high school-ish. And even as late as undergrad, I had no idea that this was a whole phenomenon, I mean, I just assume that, okay, well, I think about this in colors, but you think about it in, you know, whatever other terms you think about it in. And I guess I didn't really ever worry about it. And then in undergrad, I was like, wait, there's a term for this? There's a whole, like, body of research looking at this? I had no idea. Have you kind of intentionally hidden it from people ever? Not really, except for most people don't really know what to make of it. You know, so it's like, okay, well, that, that piece seems blue to me. They're like, blue? What do you mean, blue? And not all sad music is blue, and not all happy music is any other color. It just is. And why, I don't know. Hmm. But in general, is the color tied to an emotion? Maybe. I don't know. I kind of doubt it, though, because then you would run out of colors. For all the different emotions expressed in music, you would run out of colors. And no, they don't all fall as primary colors, like rainbow colors. You know, they're, sometimes they're mixtures, and they do change a little bit, too. As a piece will morph, the color sort of morphs with it, evolves. Huh. So, I, again, There's... I don't know how to explain it exactly. <laughs> sure, sure. So. When you're choosing pieces to play, does that mm-hmm. ever factor in? I know you said you kind of intentionally shut it off when you're playing because it's distracting, but... A little bit, but actually in choosing pieces, not really. It was never like, okay, well, I have to have all red pieces or all green pieces. I never thought of it like that. It's just like the music has this color. But when programming, I guess that was never the most most pressing concern.
The Stravinsky three pieces, that was one of the first times that I actually did something with the fact that I related colors to music. And I actually did a mixed medium performance of it where I performed the piece and then um, there were dancers representing the different colors. And each of the three pieces has a different color that goes with it. So the first movement is the blue movement. And the second movement is definitely red because it's jumping all over the place. And the third movement is green for whatever reason. If you watch a performance that does involve colors, like either colored lights, does that throw off? The, if it doesn't mesh with what you're thinking of, or does it enhance it? Or no, um, they, I notice the difference. Like, and I probably think to myself when I'm feeling judgmental, like, why did they choose red for the lights? It should have been whatever color they should have been. But otherwise, I guess it's just sort of separated. Are there certain pieces that are distressing colors? Like, if there's dissonance in the music. Is there, like, visual dissonance to you? I think the color is more, f- more sort of like a kaleidoscope, but not the multiple colors of a kaleidoscope, but more like that and less, like, actual figures or actual images. So in that way, I mean, I suppose conflict probably in some ways does impact the color, but conflict isn't always bright red or it isn't always, like, brown and black or anything like that. It might have to do more with the intensity of the color. Hmm. Is it like your vision is kind of tinted overall? But I don't see it. I don't actually see it with my eyes. It's all in my mind. Okay. It's like that voice in the back of your mind, how you you know something, but it's not foremost in your mind. Sort of like when you're hungry and you're doing something else. You know you're hungry and you recognize it, but it doesn't really come to play until you get really hungry. And obviously the colors never get that intense. They're like, oh, I have to go do something about it. You're aware of it. You're conscious of it, but it's not your primary focus. What can composers do to please you in the color (laughs) spectrum? Right. It all, I think, comes down to a lot of richness in the sound. So that actually almost more comes from the performers. But richness in the textures, richness in the way the melodies work together, if there are multiple melodies going on at once, or definitely rich harmonic basis. That definitely makes it more vibrant. When you listen back to your own composing, do you hear that kind of... Only after a long period of time has passed. So when I listened to them again last night immediately colors came back in my mind. And I actually kind of think they were the same ones as when I was writing them. But it wasn't like I went about to write a purple piece. That just happened. It's like whatever I wrote, it's like, oh, okay, that's purple. It's very hard to explain and very infrequent do I actually talk about it because almost nobody can really make sense of it. And it doesn't play that much of a role in what I do as a performer, as a teacher, probably plays the greatest role as a composer. That puppy theme you came up with, is there a color associated with that? Um, white, actually. Huh. So I don't know why white. 
So your piece you wrote for this Duluth Symphony Orchestra contest, that's kind of a funny connection that I had somehow won that contest the year earlier in 2006, and then I didn't know you at all, but you had won the year after. It's actually theme and variations. And so I wrote the theme first, obviously. But then I wrote the variations and I thought, okay, well, I'll write them, you know, separately and I'll decide what order I want them in once I've written them all. Well, I got to the end and I was ready to mix them around and put them in the right order. And I couldn't conceive of them in any other order than the order I'd written them in. So I guess it goes back to that stream of consciousness. (laughs) I they sounded wrong when I put them in other orders. And I think that it's much stronger because they are in that order. I feel like the whole piece builds uh, exactly the way that I wanted it to. So did the whole piece come to you in one fell swoop? No, the first theme and the first couple variations did. Then I'm like, okay, I'm knee deep in a theme of variations. I've got to do something. What else can I do with this theme? The finale was really exciting because it was both an ornamented version of the theme, which you'll hear in the strings, but also the flutes, you'll hear a really elongated version of it, one on top of the other. When I was listening to your solo clarinet pieces, it struck me that having not played a, a wind instrument myself, sure. you seem to have a real natural sense of phrasing. And I wonder if playing the wind instrument of clarinet plays a role in that. Very much yeah. so. Even though I began composing music as a young child, I really think my compositional voice was very much molded by the fact that I was a performer. That kind of fits with your fan question from Maya Heyman. Oh, asking, um, how does all your training and experience as a performer, how does that change how you compose music? Every time I write a piece, I definitely approach it as a performer, as how would I respond to this if this were on the paper? How would my colleagues respond to it if this were on the paper? How music looks on the page makes a massive difference in how easily we can perform it and what comes across in our performance. Sometimes the most complicated rhythms are written in ways that aren't particularly logical, but if we rebar and rewrite them at all, it's the same sonic result, but how it looks to us is very different. Maybe we could talk about your trip to Germany that you were on recently. Right. So last summer, I spent pretty much most of the summer tracing the life of Johann Sebastian Bach as a program from the National Endowment for the Humanities, specifically for teachers. And we started out in his hometown in Eisenach. I literally walked the way he went to school, and we saw the churches where he was baptized, everything. 
And after we left Eisenach, we went to Leipzig, where he spent the vast majority of his professional career. He was a music teacher at the St. Thomas School. And so he was responsible for making sure that all the boys were fed, all the boys were well, nobody was getting sick. Uh, he was more or less a dorm parent. Meanwhile, writing masterpieces. Exactly. In his spare time. Exactly. And <laughs> raising his own kids. And yeah, so he, he was a busy guy. Uh, and he was the organist for two different churches. And so he was writing works for use at both of those churches. Plus, the best musicians were in Dresden at the time. So he was writing pieces for the court of Dresden because he wanted to write for the best musicians of the time. So he worked in several different jobs, not too dissimilar from today's society where you end up working a couple different jobs. Sure. Kind of the composer's life of today, too. Yes, very you much have to so. be willing to freelance yes. and do oh, absolutely. tons of stuff. And also, it's interesting, the whole process of getting a position, it was just assumed that he would be able to create these works for um, the different churches every week. If you were applying for a job, not only did you have to be an organist, but you also had to send off your dossier to the prospective church. And they would look at it, and their current musicians would be like, oh, this is a great composer, or not so great. We're going to pass. So you mentioned that there were other composers out there like Bach who were <laughs> constantly coming up with new stuff for churches. Yeah. What do you think sets Bach apart from the others? (laughs) That was almost the theme of the entire summer is, why is this so incredible? I think it's a combination of things. He pushed the envelope a little bit in terms of his composition. So I think that there's that, but there's also something externally engaging in it. And maybe part of it is that there are surprises in there. In fact, when you start looking at the scores, like you listen to it and you think, okay, this is really awesome. But you start looking at the scores, you're like, good grief, we just moved through four different keys and we're, you know, 30 measures into this piece or something like that. So I think there are things like that mm. that grab our attention. It's entirely subconscious when we listen to it. But when you start looking yeah. at the scores, it, now that's it's, where it comes alive. I think now it's subconscious to us. That's but true. But back then, I wonder what yeah. people would have heard because... So many people have copied Bach. Yes. I mean, pretty much everybody. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it's so true. I mean, from the fact that all of our um, rules as far as counterpoint come from Bach, that uh, all the way forward in terms of tonal music theory. Yeah. It's all based on that. I remember hearing about this guy who was studying Renaissance music, like, <sighs> and Gregorian chant, mm-hmm. and yeah. like this pre Bach yeah. music for weeks on end and months maybe and never listened to anything else and he heard this music coming from the stereo and he's like oh what is this horrible music it's so dissonant i can't handle it (laughs) and he looked and it was music by bach oh no (laughs) (laughs) yeah i could totally believe it so he was super revolutionary absolutely So do you think Bach had the same skill you have of thinking a constant flow of melodies coming at him? No. He must have had something that he turned out so much music. He was literally writing a cantata a week for years. He definitely was not waiting to be inspired by something. He didn't have that luxury. Even Frederick the Great had heard about Bach, and he invited Bach to his palace. So he had a reputation, definitely. But 
they had no idea how revolutionary his music was at the time, for the most part. They didn't have the foresight to see that his music was applicable to decades later. In fact, there are stories that some of his scores were sold to the meatpacking plant to wrap meats, things like that. So taking this whole trip through Bach's life, what have you learned there that you're going to apply to your <laughs> own composing? Well, one thing um, that came out in my own teaching, because I have younger students, was just the fact that they really need really good quality music from the very beginning. And there's certainly nothing against anything that's written in terms of an educational nature, but that's a very new concept, actually, the idea that we're writing music education music specifically for use as learning tools. And there's certainly a place for that. But I think that their diet of music also has to be balanced by some of this music that has withstood the test of time. And specifically Bach, I actually transcribed several Bach's works for use with my students. And I thought, was this desecration of Bach's works? I mean, he wrote, they were perfect when he finished it. But I finally came to terms with the fact that he did the same thing with his own music for his own students, and that it was probably okay, you know, adjusting these pieces and making them playable, whether it meant we had to change the key. I tried to keep the bones of it completely the same. I think this would have been okay, because this is really how he went about it as well. He was very utilitarian, so... Um, and he'd be happy to hear that his music's being played. I, exactly! That's true! Kids. That's true, especially after that period of time after his d- passing. That, um, yeah, not that they much were is wrapping his music in meat. Yeah, exactly. Like wrapping meat, meat in, in his, his music. music. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mary Beth, I'm sure I could keep asking you questions for hours <laughs> and hours. But yeah, it's been really an interesting talk Good. with you. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. And also, um, in each episode, I ask the composer, songwriter to come up with an intro theme for their episode. Ah, okay. So, I see you have your clarinet here. Oh, no! <laughs> How would you no feel wonder. about okay. um, if I gave you the theme of Composer Quest? Okay. And would you want to try a little on-the-spot composing <laughs> sure. for the, the episode? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Wow. I have never done this like a parlor trick where <laughs> you have to compose like in the moment. Yeah. Okay. I have ideas. Let's say... Are there some images that are running through your head right now as you're thinking of... <laughs> like Superman. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's very red and orange. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Composer quest. Exactly. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of Composer Quest with Dr. Mary Beth Hutland. She's currently working on her website now, but there's an even better way to connect with her. Her group, the Twin Cities Trio is looking for arrangements of pop tunes or movie themes for bassoon, clarinet, and oboe. A couple of episodes ago, I made this challenge official and proposed the first Composer Quest quest. So you have until April 1st at midnight Central Standard Time to submit your scores to twin.cities.trio at gmail.com. The Twin Cities Trio will perform the best submissions live and I'll feature those arrangements right here on Composer Quest. A shout out here to Caleb Hines, 
who submitted the first arrangement for the challenge. He arranged the Captain America theme for this trio of bassoon, clarinet, and oboe, so I'm excited to hear how that sounds. Good luck to the rest of you, and happy arranging. And stay tuned, because the next episode, I by chance happen to interview another synesthete who does songwriting and producing. Stay in the loop by joining us at facebook.com slash composerquest or twitter.com slash composerquest. Also a quick credit for this episode, I used William McCall's recording of Stravinsky's Three Pieces for Clarinet. So thanks again for listening. I'll leave you with a sample from one of Mary Beth's pieces called Echoes in Time. <laughs>